0: The Giants began the season 0-2, while the Saints were 0-3. Both have only lost once since. This Sunday, they go head-to-head at the Superdome.
1: Touchdown!
0: Coverage begins at noon Eastern on ESPN Radio. You cannot lose games in the NFL and
2: still win. One day I understand. One day, go see the baby be born and come back. You're a major
3: league baseball player. Did I not tell you? Yes, you did. Oh, right. See, don't answer. I, this are, these are rhetorical questions, because you know I told you, and you know I'm not. Analytics don't, don't, work, don't work at, at all. It's They're just a crap to some
1: nothing. people who were really smart, made up to try to get in the game, because they had no talent. This kid is a gamer. He's a follower. He's a slave maker And a shot In case you didn't know, I got t He shattered the mold. And all he does is win.
4: All he does is win.
1: Hello
0: and welcome to Hot Takedown 538, podcast about the week in sports narratives. I'm Chad Matlin, editor at Five Thirty Eight. Across the table from me, there's Kate Fagan, columnist at ESPNW. Hey, Kate. Hi, Chad. And all the way from some ivory tower somewhere on the East Coast, Neil Payne. Neil, can you hear us through all of that thick pretension and ivy? Yeah.
2: <laughs> Loud and clear, Chad. Loud and clear.
0: Excellent, uh, Neil. You were you were lecturing the good students at pen is that right and,
2: and I was yeah I was talking about sabermetrics with some young impressionable students and uh, hopefully they learned a lot and uh, we'll go on to crunch some work plus and some uh, OPS plus uh, at a at a school near you
0: so you're saying you brought the statman cape to the to the speaking engagement
2: I b- I brought the cape and I brought the mask. I really, I did the whole suit. The mask now. Suit. You haven't worn the mask for us. It's, it's, it's did you bring really like hot.
3: a box of certificates to pass them out once completed the course?
2: Uh, well, uh, you know, I still have to grade their uh, final exams. So okay. uh, we'll we'll see if they all passed and got the certificates. So
3: Chad and I are still smarter than them, is what you're saying?
0: Decorating <laughs> to arch. You crew. said it, okay. not I. Yeah. Okay. Uh, All right, so on today's show, we're going to talk about how Ronda Rousey fights like an outlier. We're going to talk about how teams should have behaved at the MLB trade deadline, and we'll talk about how hard it is to make sense of the latest doping news in international athletics. So let's get to Rousey. Last weekend, Rousey needed 34 seconds to knock out Beth Correa. That's not even the fastest. Rousey has beaten an opponent. She beat Kat Zingano in 14 seconds earlier this year, and still Rousey is getting faster. Her career average victory time is down to, 100 to 128 seconds after this latest bout. Um, and her entire career in the ring, uh, according to Greg Howard at Deadspin, has lasted a total of 25 minutes and 36 seconds. She has been fighting less, about half the time of an average hot down podcast. <laughs> um, so to talk about R- Rousey's dominance, we invited 538's quantitative editor, Andrew Flowers. Andrew, hello. Hello. Thanks for having me. So, Andrew... Last week, you spent just immersed in UFC and MMA data. And what came out was this great article, Ronda Rousey fights like an outlier. So I want to read to you a passage from that Deadspin piece that I mentioned that Greg Howard wrote. It's our first hot take of the week. And I quote, Ronda Rousey is one of the most dominant athletes alive. And watching her while we can is a profound privilege because we have never seen and will never again see anything like her. Andrew, your article is so good. Rousey's mother, who's a statistician herself, tweeted it. Is Greg Howard right? Is Ronda Rousey something that we're never going to see again?
1: I would say yes. Rousey is unlike any athlete uh, performing today. Um, And I would expound on that hot take by saying that the key point is we'll never see again. And the reason we won't ever see a fighter like this again is because she's changing mixed martial arts ...by her dominance. She's ferociously fast, as we all know. She's undefeated. Um, she's the best pound-for-pound pound women's MMA fighter in the world. And uh, she's only getting better, only getting faster. It's it's a, it's an amazing sight to watch. You, you've you got to catch her next fight.
3: And I'm assuming also the reason we'll never see her again is because she's bringing so much of a spotlight to MMA, which means that likely more women will start practicing the sport, get involved in the sport... Which to me, if I look down, down the road, I would think because of the level of competition, then it's going to be harder to have a dominant fighter, female fighter like Ronda Rousey. So in a way, it's like we could look back at her and be like, wow, like, kind of like how we look at Babe Ruth or something now. Like She sort of introduced us to the sport. And also because of that, the comp- like, it's sort of like the competition is just going to zero in and it's going to be really hard for another fighter to dominate the sport again like this.
1: I think you're you're dead right, and, and and I like where you're going with the historical figures in other sports. and And Neil and I actually just ran the water cooler last week. We're talking about um, in a different sport, in basketball, how Ronda Rousey's like Wilt Chamberlain or Kareem Abdul Jabbar, so, an athlete who comes to the sport literally changes the game. As those centers made basketball more of a, a vertical game and made it more about dunking, Ronda Rousey's changing the sport of uh, of MMA uh, for both men and women. And it's interesting to look at these other historical athletes at uh, in their sports how they just change the way the game is played so
0: what's what's confusing to me then is that in your article andrew you note that rousey likes to win through armbar through an armbar submission excuse me whereas the trends in mma are are not towards that that she's sort of that she's counter to the trends in all sorts of ways she's faster than ever before you showed you calculated something called fight speed score which which showed how quickly she won the fight versus how long it took for her to lose right and she was a way she was uh, 100% winning percentage and way to the right oh, yes. the, the, the 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 best fight score. And this armbar thing, she is using techniques that are going out of fashion. So, how does that square with our belief that maybe she's bringing a whole new uh, a whole new technique into the sport?
1: yeah I think it 's like her low hanging fruit is a submission right is like that 's her easiest way to beat you that 's how she can just beat you in fourteen seconds, which was her fight before this most recent one is that if you aren 't prepared and and, def- and able to defend against that type of an attack you 're going to go down and very quickly but in her last fight just this past Saturday, how did she win? She won by a knockout now. Chad's absolutely right. One of the things I found in my analysis is that, yes, she's won nine of her 12 fights by an armbar, which is a submission when you get your opponent to kind of tap out verbally or physically. But her other three uh, wins are by knockout, and, and including the most recent one. So uh, that's how I see it when I relate it back to her. Even though she's going counter to uh, MMA trends, that's just her first opportunity to beat you. And we saw on Saturday night how she's more than just a good former judoka. She's more than just someone who can submit you. She can also knock you out.
2: Yeah, Andrew, I had a question about that. So, uh, you say that her armbar technique is kind of going out of style, and uh, I guess maybe uh, you could have made an argument that that meant that she was more prone uh, to lose, or that as this evolution takes place, that it's taking away her best option. But, uh, like you said, the way that she lost, or the way that she won the other day, seemed to suggest that she has like other gears that she can reach. And uh, do we have a sense of just like grading the the, the dominance, like you refer to the arm bar as a low-hanging fruit. There are more levels that she could reach that uh, potentially she hasn't even had to reach down for yet?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Now, the data on this, how we quantify this is, is a little tricky, and, and I'll get to that in a second. But basically, if she's good at submitting her opponents, and uh, if they're very conscious about defending that, like this most recent fight showed, but and then she's still able to knock them out, we can quantify her ability... As a striker, which is if you kind of break down MMA into kind of these three rough components, this is the way I think about it, but you have striking, the actual kind of punk, uh, you know, um, uh, punches and kicks, you have the kind of submitting techniques to actually, once you have them on the ground or in a position, so that they tap out, and then you also have the kind of takedown maneuvers, the kind of wrestling moves to get them in that kind of transition period to be on the floor. Well, she's good in all those domains. So, so, Neil, to your point is, there is advanced data out there from Fight Metric, which is the kind of advanced statistical uh, analyzer, uh, this company that uh, studies MMA fights, and they have stats on things like, you know, your strike accuracy. And we can look at Ronda Rousey's previous fights and say, like, how, what's, what percentage of her attempted punches and, and kicks does she actually connect to, and uh, how many of them are significant? The problem with this, though, and Rousey is, is so interesting, is that... This data is so sparse because she beats her opponents, (laughs) A, so fast, and B, by these, like I said, low hanging fruit techniques of just getting them twisting their arm and and then they just have to say uncle.
3: And I I think one thing she doesn't get quite enough credit for is her really top level strategy. Because I I did do a profile of Sarah McMahon, who uh, Rousey fought in February. And I spent some time with Sarah and, you know, Sarah's um, training group you know who, who were strategizing with her and of course they're worried because because the arm bar is the thing everything that an opponent has to gear herself for is to just make sure that you're not going to be submitted by arm bar which takes away some percentage of your focus from everything else so while Sarah McMahon is over here focusing on hey, hey I'm a wrestler my foundation is wrestling what moves am I gonna you know what moves am I gonna do that I can win and I have to avoid the the arm bar, Rousey's camp was over here being like, well, if she's guarding against an armbar, she's going to be exposed on her side and we're going to hit her in the kidneys. I mean, and, and that's what that's how that fight went down. You've, you've seen that throughout Rousey's career, like the the strategy in which she employs once she knows that armbar is top of mind is actually top shelf.
0: So, kid, I want to talk a bit about Rousey as a female athletic icon, because it seems to me as though she has been able. We talked about Elena Don uh, a couple of weeks now on the show, I mm-hmm. think. And about how the WNBA hasn't been able to quite find an athlete that can break out and become a a broader icon, I would argue, um, beyond the sport. Rousey has; Mm -hmm. she's in Entourage, the movie. She's (laughs) um, in plenty of ad campaigns. She, um, you you know, she can she is able to call into SportsCenter rather than appear live, which I feel like suggests some type of cachet. You don't gotta Um, go all the way to Bristol for it, right? Um, You know that. Do that? Yeah, right. Uh, So. You know what is it about Rousey uh, that 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 is that has that has made her something larger than the sport? Is it that she's so good as Andrew showed in in his piece, or is it something different?
3: Well, one, she has the luxury of not being in a team sport, which is harder for female athletes because um, there's all kinds of protocol and you know uh, you have to play by the rules of the team sport, which don't allow you to be as vocal and as personality driven. I think Andrew, you even wrote this in your piece about how her personality drives a lot of this Um, and how she knows very, very well that she's playing a character. And I think she buys into that and she and her opponent find something every single time where you're pitting um, an opponent against each other. And right. Like we talk about this all the time in the podcast. We love controversy. It's like Ronda Rousey had took the smartest course on how to be relevant in the media and executes it before every fight to perfection.
0: And it's similar in a way to what we were talking about with her her calibrating her fighting style to whether or not someone's expecting an armbar. She like <laughs> yes. it it's exploiting the the system and, and and the game in a way.
3: Yeah, I mean I don't think we give her enough credit for um her PR machine. I mean we we do in in like men's boxing. Maybe for some reason we think oh like she's a female fighter. she must be doing things differently. No, she, she looked at what, you know, boxing has done and the way they've created characters, and she's like, I'm going to do that. We don't see that enough in women's sports, in my opinion.
2: But do you think that kind of all goes away if she loses? And, in fact, Andrew, uh, do you think that she'll ever lose? Like, uh, do you think that there will be someone who combines all of the things that she's good at even better than her, uh, that, that she will kind of ever be taken even further into a fight than she's been taken so far? I think
1: trying to predict the future of um, MMA is incredibly – foolish. <laughs> and I say yeah. that because it's such a young sport. And, and, and again, to use the analogy of of of, of Wilt Chamberlain and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and, and Bill Russell, like how they change basketball and its evolution, she's changing MMA. Well, it's because the sport has only really been fighting since the late 90s. And, and for the uh, female MMA fighters, it didn't really have a lot of competition until, say, the last five to eight years. So now you're getting all this attraction to the sport. As Kate said, more and more women, uh, more and more female athletes are, are saying, wait a second, I could do this. I can transition from whatever I, I did professionally or in college and be an MMA fighter. And they're going to study her. And they're going to look at every flaw she has. And as to whether she, she will ever lose... Um, I, the the frank answer is, I don't know. I mean, she's so dominant right now, but the sport is, 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 is evolving fast.
3: And we kind of saw a version of Ronda Rousey before Ronda Rousey, and that was Gina Carano. Yes, Of course, it was during a different time before social media, and maybe she wasn't quite as fine-tuned as Rousey in how to work the media. Um, but I think the the flaw that the UFC had was... When Gina Carano left to go do movies, there was this gap where they didn't have a replacement in any way. Not even like a fabricated creation replacement that they could sort of pass the torch to. I don't think Rousey's going to lose only because I don't think she's going to be fighting for that much longer. Um, But I think it would behoove the UFC to tap somebody who has the endorsement of Rousey next before they just let that gap happen where people stop paying attention.
0: Another thing that's hanging over the who Rousey's perhaps going to fight is is there is prior comments about whether or not she's going to fight a transgender athlete? Is that right, Kate?
3: Yeah, and, and I'm glad you bring that up, Chad, because it's it's hard it's difficult to talk about Ronda Rousey um, and not mention some of the the comments she's made about transgender athletes. I mean, I think we we now in society as we talk about like the Floyd Mayweather fight, we certainly talk about his domestic violence record. Um, and when it comes to Ron Rousey, she said uh, specifically things about Fallon Fox, who is a an MMA fighter, a, a transgender MMA fighter, um, that can certainly be construed as transphobic. And we don't seem to be talking about that enough. I don't know if it's because of the specific topic, if people don't want to talk about it, or they don't know how to address it with a female athlete. So the
0: quote is, uh, she can try hormones, chop her pecker off, but it's still the same bone structure a man has. It's an advantage. I don't think it's fair. And this relates back to what we were talking about last week with Duty Chand about whether or not um, some where where the border is between gender within
3: athletics. Right. And Rhonda has over the last few months sort of evolved on her opinions on the topic. I mean, there was the quote you just read, which was like clearly transphobic. And then she went on HuffPo a few months later and had done a lot of Research, you could tell because she was talking about just what we were talking about last week and what we talk about around transgender athletes is like these hormone levels and what qualifies if you complete hormone therapy and you're in a certain range. Now, these are all lines that we've drawn, but we don't really know where we're drawing them. So her views seem to have evolved. And I think part of that is the backlash she did face, whether it's a small backlash from those initial transphobic comments. So I think it makes sense as like she's in the spotlight once a month about. And so if we want to move the conversation forward, then we have to shine a spotlight on what she's saying about these things, because it's important. And because Fallon Fox, you know, could be her next opponent. You know, I mean, If, if that were something that were to happen, then we would certainly have to have the conversation about where we are right now with transgender athletes.
2: And, Kate, do we have a sense for whether uh, she's right, like how much of an advantage that is, or is it something where all of the hormone therapy and everything sort of uh, takes care of it and and it would be kind of a convenient excuse if Rousey were to lose?
3: I mean, Ch- Chad and I were talking about this even before. I mean, all the research seems to show that once a transgender athlete or a transgender human being goes through hormone therapy, there's no more... They're not any more or less a quote unquote woman um, than someone who before they went through therapy. Last
0: week we were reading an op-ed in The Washington Post from a a, a transgender runner, I believe, um, who after transitioning to being a woman had seen five minutes, I think, drop off of her time. I forget in what event. And she had said that she was blown away by how limited she she felt. Um, compared to her other her times before transition
3: right so i mean it's kind of like the research we have and i don't know how detailed it is says that there is no competitive advantage um once once a transgender athlete has gone through hormone therapy
0: all right let's leave it there for now andrew thanks so much for coming on
1: thank you so much for having me it was a real pleasure and
0: listeners you can read andrew's piece ronda rousey fights like an outlier at 538.com okay let's move on to baseball so a good podcast host would introduce a topic by thinking big and national. So, you know, he, for example, would introduce a segment on baseball's trade deadline by telling you that the Royals trade for Johnny Cueto, Ben Zobris, the Blue Jays trying to mash their way into October, that the Yankees didn't do much of anything. But can I just forget all you guys with my trade <laughs> deadline story? Because it involves the Mets, obviously. What? I know. Surprise, surprise. Oh. So this story features me in City Field on the night that the Mets acquired Carlos Gomez. It features me giving a standing ovation to Wilmer Flores and feeling really emotional about Wilmer's departure. It features me learning on Twitter that Wilmer was crying because people like me were giving him a standing ovation. And then it features me on the train laughing maniacally when I learned that Wilmer Flores is not going anywhere, that Carlos Carlos Gomez is not going anywhere, and sort of wondering about how ridiculous, ridiculous it is to be enslaved to Fred Wilpon and his masterly ways.
3: One, were you actually at City Field? Mm-hmm. Oh my God, high five across the uh, podcast table. It was That's it was amazing. Really, that's, like, people were chanting for Carlos
0: Gomez. I know. That's a moment. Yes, I was there. And yes, Wilmer wasn't traded. <laughs> and yet, still, we are getting takes like this one from Scott Miller at Bleacher Report. Believe it or not, a couple nights ago they were losers over the whole Carlos Gomez fiasco, but getting Jonas Cespedes at the trade deadline just under the gun
2: on Friday afternoon, big-time move for the Mets. That bat is going to play huge in the lineup. He's Especially the last month, Cespedes has been swinging really
0: well. Uh, Nice to see the Mets get some help for the young pitchers. So, of course, they had to trade somebody to get Cespedes, (laughs) and they trade two prospects to do it. And, Neil, I need your help. We're really going to talk about the whole league, but first, did the Mets do the right thing? You have spent the last week trying to create one algorithm stats program to rule them all and tell readers and listeners when a team should trade or should not trade. And lie to us. Lie to us. Yeah, even if the Mets (laughs) didn't do the right thing,
2: tell me they did. Yeah, the Mets did totally the right thing. I mean, you can make the argument I'm being a little facetious uh, at first, because our, our metric says that they probably shouldn't have uh, kind of made the moves that they did uh, <laughs> to win now. But uh, also, you know, you can't argue with these early returns that they've had certainly off of them, and I know that's small uh, sample small size sample, Neil. don't theater. fall prey. Uh, right now. But uh, even at this sensitive moment in the playoff chase, I mean, they are in first place at their division, uh, and according to Fangraft, have a much better probability of making the playoffs than they did just uh, you know, a couple weeks ago, uh, certainly before the the deadline. But uh, to go back to your original question of just how we sort of tried to model, uh, and by we I mean Nate Silver and I, uh, tried to model a team's decision-making process at the deadline, we created this thing called a team's Doyle number, uh, and that is a reference to Doyle Alexander. Uh, baseball fans from the 80s will remember, uh, or Atlanta Braves fans from the 90s will remember, that the Detroit Tigers traded away this veteran pitcher, Doyle Alexander, who was very good, uh, or the, the Braves traded him away to the Tigers. Tigers picked him up got a few good years, even appeared in a World Series uh, with him, but they traded away John Smoltz, who just last weekend uh, was inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame. Uh, so it's kind of this classic example of giving up value in the future in exchange for winning now. Uh, and so we named the metric after, and the metric measures, how many wins should you be willing to give up of future talent in exchange for one win at the trade deadline? Uh, and it's based on how much it moves your needle of winning the World Series this year compared to how much uh, World Series probability you're giving up over the next six years.
3: And is it specifically that year? Is there any way to compute? Certainly, you, you get a guy who's good and you want him to help you that year, but you also got a guy, even if it's like only for a couple years, if he's older than the prospect, you obviously traded away. Does the model take into account that? Like the well, next year? Yeah.
2: Ideally, it's modeling this kind of situation where you have a rental uh, and and you know that the guy is probably not going to be on your team next year, or if he is on your team, you're going to have to make an additional outlay of resources uh, and, and re-sign him to another contract uh, at the end of the year. So it's purely looking at situations where you're bringing in someone to gear up for the stretch run of the regular season and the playoffs, and you're making this very conscious trade-off of prospects uh, in the future for this very short-term thing. So, for example, Uh, the Texas Rangers picked up Cole Hamels, uh, who's one of the best uh, starting pitchers in baseball and uh, our metric would have said that they were not in a position at all to make that trade, that they should have held on to the prospects, but Hamels is also signed beyond just this season. He signed several seasons, in fact, into the future. So that complicates things a little bit and it's sort of a simplification that we built into the model Uh, but mainly it's just looking at the trade-off between the end of this season, including the playoffs, and whatever you're giving up in subsequent seasons.
0: So, Neil, on on this table about this year's teams, you said you and Nate found that only nine teams, according to this Doyle number, should be buying, should be trying to attract talent and mortgaging um, the future in order to win in the present. So that leaves a lot of teams to, to, that should just be rebuilding and as a casual fan, I think, wait, you're stripping all the hope from me, right? Like the Mets have a Doyle number of 0.52, but no. you yourself just said that you know, early returns are good. So doesn't this is where I sort of brush up uh, against stats, where, where we remove all the irrational emotion of hope and joy and unexpected events from sports because we're trying to only make the maximized and optimized decision.
2: Well, and it's also a question of preference in some ways of short-term versus long-term. Like, do you want to have uh, this playoff race sort of extend and, and see where it goes? And in some ways, that's a perfectly uh, you know, rational decision, especially as a fan, where it's really exciting, and you're getting a lot of uh, benefit from being a Mets fan right now and, and being along for this ride. Uh, but if I was running a team, I think the calculus would be a little bit different, and certainly emotion would play less of a role, and it's all about uh, what a amount of talent should I give up or take in to break even uh, or ideally be better than breaking even on expected World Series uh, in the total, including this year and in the future?
3: The one team that I was surprised about was the Detroit Tigers and surprised in terms of their Doyle number. And I think it was, and again, maybe it's just because I wasn't applying data to it and I've kind of thought of the Detroit Tigers for the last few years as having talent and they've they've been in the hunt and, you know, why why be sellers at the trading deadline when there seemed to still be hope? And I know what you mean by built into the model is the idea of like trading away future wins. But for a team like the Tigers, you know, is there any way to build into the model, I guess, the difficulty of rebuilding a franchise?
2: Well, certainly, yeah. To to your first uh, point, I mean, you weren't the only one that was upset about the Tigers, or you know, perplexed by the Tigers' uh, predicament. Their manager, Brad Ausmus, actually uh, was somewhat vocal against his own front office, you know, trying to make sense of this decision where they said everyone's up for grabs. Uh, you know, we're taking offers for David Price and we're we're taking offers for Cespedes. Uh, but I think uh, rationally, according to at least our trade-off uh, metric. They had a Doyle number that was uh very low, which means that they should be very willing to give up current talent in exchange for future talent. Uh and really the best we have a, a graph on the on the story that Nate and I did where we show what the benefit uh to your total World Series won over this year and the six years afterward of either adding wins or or subtracting wins. And some teams are right in the middle, and the Mets were one of those teams, and the Blue Jays especially were one of those teams where the worst thing that they could have done was just stand pat. Like, they had to choose and do something, and so you can kind of commend them, even if they defied the Doyle number a little bit, they moved themselves in a positive direction relative to doing nothing. But the Tigers have this arc that shows that adding talent or standing pat would have been a bad decision, It would have been some of the worst things that they could have done and that moving backwards, uh, in terms of current talent was the thing that was going to help them the most because their World Series odds this year, uh, were so low even going into the trade deadline before they divested themselves of assets that it, it just doesn't make sense to hold on to assets in a situation that's probably going to be all for naught. Uh, and another one of the things that came out of this is that really your playoff probability is one thing, uh, and that includes getting past the one-game gauntlet of, uh, of the wild card play-in game. But... Uh The most important thing about adding talent, uh, for teams that are buyers, it actually bolsters their odds of winning the World Series once they're in the playoffs far more than it even helps them make the playoffs, because there are diminishing returns on how much adding talent can help you make the playoffs, Uh, and that's one of the lessons maybe from the Tigers or maybe even from the Mets is adding a bunch of talent can only go so far in brute forcing your way into the playoffs, but once you're into the playoffs, everything resets, and it, it doesn't matter if you played most of the season as like an 82-win team or something. If you added 10 wins of talent at the trade deadline, suddenly you're this 92-win team that has to be reckoned with, and maybe that's something that the Blue Jays are kind of exemplars of this year, where for most of the year, I mean, they had this great run differential to begin with, and then they added uh, a bunch of talent, and now they're a team that probably every other team in the American League is hoping that they miss the playoffs because they don't want to face them in the playoffs when everything kind of gets set uh Reset to zero.
0: So Neil, let me go back to this idea that standing pat is the worst thing for a team to do. Because it reminded me of what we talked about in the NBA quite a bit about teams either needing to tank or try and win. Now that the middle and mediocre isn't good enough, and this felt to me like the closest I've seen that be applied to baseball as well, where for teams that are sort of good, right, and sort of not and not awful, um, that are in the middle of the pack, we now see clearly. Um, a version of the Tank or Win Now uh, system. Am I reading that that wrong?
2: No, I think that's, uh, that's an accurate assessment of it where you have to basically pick a direction if you're one of these middle-of-the-pack teams uh, that would serve you best. And this isn't really like... necessarily a new concept in baseball, even, because uh, our friend Jonah Carey wrote about something called the success cycle uh, almost a decade ago uh, at Baseball Prospectus, where he pretty much said some of the same things. He didn't quantify it quite as much, uh, but but said that a team needs to either you know, decide if they're going to be a contender and, and per, ideally build toward that uh, and, and have like a schedule and a timetable to be on that uh, and when we talk often of the Houston Astros being ahead of schedule that's kind of the, that idea coming into play and then uh, you know, if you don't have the talent uh, and you can't realistically win the World Series then the best thing to do is kind of get these prospects and, and play, you know, play the card of the future being more valuable than the present.
0: Okay, so let's leave it there. Neil, I look forward to rubbing your nose in the Mets' success despite <laughs> the editorial score for the rest Me of the too. season. Kate will, Kate will join happily as well. And listeners, you can read Neil and Nate's piece on 538.com. You'll find it under, under the headline, Did Your Team Blow It at the Trade Deadline? Okay, let's move on to international athletics. England's Sunday Times paper and the German channel ARDWDR. Love that name for a channel. It's so (laughs) we would never name a channel channel like that. Yeah, in America, I'll never
3: forget Um, that. So
0: those two uh, media organizations obtained twelve thousand blood tests recently um, that were taken from athletes between two thousand one and two thousand twelve, and found within those blood tests that a third of medals for track endurance events, um, world championships, Olympics, etc., had been won by athletes who at some point were tagged with quote suspicious results. So what we're seeing here is a media organization asserting that third of athletic accomplishment is tainted, basically, uh, at the highest level. Um, the IA- IAAF, which is the track uh, authority, international track authority that we talked about last week, mm-hmm. um, has said that the report uh, is sensationalist and confusing. And guys, I-, I wanted your first read of this report. Do we trust this idea that maybe as much as a third of track endurance events could be tainted?
3: It's interesting because you could, you could go either way on this. Because I, when I read a third, I was like, "Wow, I, maybe I thought it would have been more than a third. In right. fact, in some ways,
2: that seemed low. Yeah,
3: especially when you consider, like, cycling, for example, you, you'd have a hard time convincing me that only a third doped at a certain period in history. And I think a lot of people would think that pretty much every competitive cyclist at some point was doping. So, at, on one hand, I'm like, a third doesn't seem like that much, and and that's the cynical nature of sports these days but also then you know you, you just have questions of what you know a suspicious blood test what does that actually mean there's there's very few parameters for what that what what does that mean
0: Well, and that's what maybe makes this, like, when when, when we were sharing this around the office, the takes were flying pretty quickly. (laughs) And that's partly because there were so many strange little uh, ins and outs that that the study took. Uh, And in, I think, the BBC report on it, uh, there was a line, more than 800 athletes, one in seven of those named in the files, have recorded blood tests described by one of the experts as, quote, highly suggestive of doping or at the very least abnormal. And that brings us right back right. to the conversation we had last That's week. That's what about I was going
3: to say, is is w- we, we need another data set of like naturally occurring testosterone. Let's just use that one metric to actually understand what within that set was naturally occurring and what wasn't. Because there's certainly a preponderance on the female side, according to the data of high levels of natural testosterone or higher than, and I'm making air quotes here, than the general population. And certainly... It feels as if that's probably true on, on the men's side. So, what's our as as you know, data people would say, like what's the what's the standard, you know, that that you're measuring high with when it comes to like like something uh-huh. like testosterone.
2: Right, I mean, we have, we talked about this in baseball also when we talked about steroids is we don't really know who's been using and who hasn't been using and so there's really not like a, a, a sample that you can compare that you know has been, you know, clean and use that as the baseline. So it's not really scientific from the get-go. You're, you're talking about abnormal levels but abnormal to what? To some of the people that are already abnormally great athletes and have abnormally high levels of you know things that are correlated with athletic success to begin with. So that's one of the concerning things I think about this whole report.
0: And what's so tempting about this study is how much it confirms what we already think—that athletics at the top level must be filled with people who are trying to get every edge up, any edge possible on every, on every other athlete. And so, of course, they dope if they need to. And that's where uh, I think the the narrative right sort of sweeps us up because now we have a hint of data and empiricism that can confirm the narrative that maybe we were already uh, leaning towards anyway, and so we can feel righteous in our position as opposed to thinking about it skeptically.
3: Yeah, and it's not even just within the track and field world where we've certainly seen like 100-meter runners and male and female busted for for doping, but it, it's now it's permeated, of course, every single sport. So, of course, when we see, oh, a, a third of Olympic track and field athletes or high-level track and field athletes, like, well, that makes sense. Cycling, you know, guys are getting busted for steroids and suspended in football, in Baseball. We don't know what's happening in basketball yet, do we? <laughs> right? That seems like it's the next horizon is to understand exactly how that sport operates. Um, but so, of course, when we see this number, we think to ourselves, yeah, absolutely. And then you don't even want to dive into the data and be like, exactly how are they confirming that number?
0: And importantly, I think that doesn't mean this is wrong, right? That doesn't mean these findings are inaccurate. It just means that we can't treat them as though they're gospel coming down just because there's a hint of certainty in them because there's numbers in them.
3: And the real frustrating part is that the lack of transparency, you know, as a as a fan of sports, the lack of transparency to to actually know, like, In 1988, when I watched as, like, a 7-year-old, the 100-meter sprint, like, who was clean? And if we had some sort of transparent sheet where we could be like, so-and-so actually did win the 400 meters, Michael Johnson, totally clean and set that amazing record, the the level of that human achievement would just rise to the point where we could really celebrate sport again instead of every single time somebody does something, quote-unquote, freak of nature-ish, we used to just think that was amazing, and now it comes with a level of well, that was great to watch, but which we do with all elite athletes most elite athletes now
2: yeah Kate, you've uh, just described the existential angst of pretty much every <laughs> baseball fan since the the 90s or, or at least since the uh, the steroid witch hunts started, uh, and, and we talked about this when we talked about uh, A-Rod and the importance of baseball stats. I think it does diminish the the feelings associated with the numbers in many of these cases when you kind of try to contextualize it, and part of that context is, I'm not having this number that represents what humanity can do mm-hmm. athletically, but it represents what humanity and some scientist, you know, who developed some kind of uh, doping agent... Uh, uh, can do. And uh, uh, that does sort of take away the majesty uh, of sports in some so, way. So
0: the more I think about this though, the more I think somebody's going to be playing this podcast in 30 years and hearing Neil you say that it's taken away the majesty of sports and think that we are just old timers. That we that it's quaint <laughs> the idea that the majesty of sport was ever about what untainted minute. achievement because the alternative is that we just are genera- generationally behind. And if if you grew up in an era in which sport has always been tainted by drugs, or, or it's not right. Even tainted, right? Then maybe you don't think of the verb tainted, but you're just thinking, oh, drugs are a part of sports, and what I'm watching probably has something else going on, but that's part of what I'm watching, right. too. This
3: actually kind of goes back to the conversation I have sometimes about when, when people say, oh, well, that's synthetic. And whether we're talking about a drug or we're talking about something outside of sport, and people are like, well, is that man-made or synthetic? And I'm like, well, doesn't everything come from the world and the earth? What so you're actually, arguing for is
0: an artisanal sports movement in like 50 <laughs> exactly, years. But,
3: <laughs> but you're right. Like maybe at some point it'll just be like, look, we play sports and whatever you got to do to be the best at it, you do. And, right. and the and fact that the we were trying to name and define things you could do, things you couldn't do, which will seem so antiquated to them. And they'll just be like, look, sports is like go. Just unleash everybody in whatever you got to do, whatever ways. In fact, that'll be part of the sport. Is coming up with the new advancements if you have to. I mean, that sounds so cynical, but maybe it's coming from this this rear view lens that you're looking at it through instead of like looking forward to the future sport. But I don't know if I sound ridiculous. I love this dystopian view.
0: uh, It does
3: sound like some blockbuster movie that could be happening.
0: Right. Or just like the post millennial (laughs) approach to sports, which I think is totally within reason.
2: Mm hmm. Won't someone please think of the children? Uh, in that case, <laughs> I know I'm just getting that out of the way uh, so that our listeners don't have to. And uh, the other thing I'll say is that Chad, the thing in this podcast that they'll find the most quaint is how inaccurate our Doyle numbers are, that we're <laughs> gonna- especially <laughs> about the 2015
0: New York Mets, Neil.
2: Right? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Could be. Uh, could be sooner than 30 years that they uh, mock for acquaintance. Hopefully uh, it's this fall. Exactly.
0: Uh, <laughs> all right. So now let's move on to our significant digit. Allison McCann stops by every week to bring us our significant digit, a telling number from sports news. Allison, what have you brought us this week?
4: This is kind of a twofold significant digit, uh, and the digit is actually two, which is the number of world records that Katie Ledecky has broken in the past 24 hours. 24 hours. Yep. Yeah. And it's two seconds as well, which is the number of seconds that she broke her own world record by in uh, the the fifteen hundred meter freestyle She's um, swimming. Swimming, correct. Uh, first in the preliminary race yesterday, which is like I guess she finished and was like, "Yeah, I wasn't even kicking that hard." <laughs> And first broke her own world record, and then in the finals uh, this morning, Tuesday morning, she uh, broke the record again by two seconds.
0: Did you s- say that she was kicking hard? This when time she, she yeah. might have been yeah.
4: trying. Uh, and for a little context, her her time of 15 minutes and 25 seconds is now almost 30 seconds faster than the next world
3: record in the in the freestyle. Wow, so she'd be good. Uh, yeah, she'd and, be real good. And I love like in when she. Broke it the second time after (laughs) she did, like, the shrug. And for listeners, I'm doing, like, the MJ just hit a jumper. Can't believe it. You're doing an internet shrug. But it's like the Michael Jordan shrug. We all know what I'm talking about. Like, oh, I can't even believe it. I'm just really that incredible. Yeah. And it's so, like, these numbers... they're they're pretty mind-boggling. Yeah,
4: she holds the fastest times ever in the 400, the 800, and the 1500 meter freestyles, which I guess people have said this is why she's become a really good distance swimmer is because she's now said like, oh, I just swim like further, like it's a sprint, like you know they keep like a like a 400 and 800 are kind of a sprint swim, and she's yeah. just been like, oh yeah, so I just I just keep sprinting, and everyone's like, yeah, but like you're supposed to right. get slower.
3: This reminds me, my sister's a really good distance runner, and when I was young, like. In middle school, she was running her high school race, and she she and my dad were talking strategy, and I just chimed in from the back seat, and I was like, "Why don't you just run to the be- front of the pack and then just stay there?" <laughs> like in all seriousness, and yeah. she was like, "That's actually not how it works at all." <laughs> and I was like, "But it seems simple to me."
0: Well, there's drafting in running where there just might not run be to in, the in, front, in swimming, yeah, and
4: stay there. <laughs> um, and one more thing on her because I'm just blown away. In April, I guess at the 2015 Arena Pro Swim Series. Uh, she swam a 400-meter prelim, again, so not even like the final one, in 4.02.67. And that same day, Michael Phelps actually swam the exact same time of 4.02.67. Oh. So she's swimming as fast as Michael Phelps is right now, Wait. which...
3: Uh, I, this can make her mainstream. We can drag her into the she-should-swim-against-guys category. Yeah. And then we can all talk about it. Ronda Rousey
0: and Kayla Ducky <laughs> that twin bill. I
3: know. Yeah. It's amazing. Bring it to Vegas and bring yeah. a pool out there.
0: Uh, all right, Allison, thanks for bringing Ledecki's double world records to us. No problem. All right, that'll do it for this week's show. Thanks, as always, to Kate Fagan. Thanks, Kate. Thanks, Chad. Neil Payne, have the students. Uh, are you leading a student Mutiny yet?
2: Uh, I'm working on it right now. I'm, I'm going to lead it from this, uh, the cubicle that I'm, I'm holed up in right now.
0: Excellent. All right, Neil, thanks for joining. Hey, Neil, go yeah. get
3: some sushi at Zama. Ooh. Right.
0: Oh. Local Philly Tech.
3: That's right, Zama by Rittenhouse Square. Sama.
0: All right. While well, Neil gets sushi, I'll tell you that our podcast producer is Jody Abergan. Our video producer is Ryan Nantel. Our intern is Asa Chaturvedi. You can email us at contact at 538.com. We'd love to hear what you think of the show. Find us on SoundCloud, Stitcher, Downcast, all sorts of other apps. We're on iTunes, of course. Subscribe at iTunes.com slash 538. Be sure to review and rate the show. It helps others discover the program. Our theme song is by Mystery Mansion. I'm Chad Matlin. Matlin. Talk to you next time Wilmer Flores does not get trained. This Sunday they go head to head at the Superdome.
1: Touchdown.
2: Coverage begins at noon Eastern on ESPN Radio.